This is Thank You Heartbreak. Hi, everyone. I'm Chelsea Lee Trescott. As a breakup coach, relationship advice columnist, and the founder of Break Upward, Chelsea is passionate about human beings and their stories. She talks to people about their journeys in love, growth, heartbreak, revelations, and every wound and lesson along the way. This podcast shines a light on heartbreak, showing you that the most crushing experiences are also your greatest opportunity to become meaningful, relatable human beings. Now, let's get to the heart of it. Hi, everyone. This is Chelsea Lee Truscott, breakup coach and podcast host of Thank You Heartbreak. And this is episode 234 with Laura Whitfield. Laura is the author of the memoir, Untethered, Faith, Failure, and Finding Solid Ground. When Laura Whitfield was 14, her extraordinary brother, Lawrence, was killed in a mountain climbing accident. That night, she had an epiphany. Life is short. Dream big, even if it means taking risks. So after graduating from high school, she set out on her own, prepared to do just that. Laura spent her first summer after high school on North Carolina's Outer Banks, a magical few months filled with friendships, boys, and beer, where she met a handsome DJ who everyone called Steve the Dream, and risked her heart. When September came, Steve moved to New York City to become a model, prompting Laura to start thinking about modeling too. After just one semester of college, still seeking to fill the void left by her brother's death, she dropped out and moved to New York to become a cover girl. But while juggling the demands of life in the big city, waiting tables, failed relationships, and the cutthroat world of modeling, she lost her way. A stirring memoir about a young woman's quest to find hope and stability after devastating loss, untethered is Laura's story of overcoming shame, embracing faith, and learning that taking risks and failing can lead to a bigger life than you've ever dared to imagine. Uh, oh my God. I'm just so emotional all the time. I got like, you know, emotional just reading the back of that. And I think it's because I've spoken to Laura now. And not only just from the very beginning in reading the back of that book, but then diving into this story, I felt so connected to her. There are so many meeting points as she calls them, between her story and my own. You know, one of the most profound things about heartbreak are the connections that come in the wake of it. I really think that it's the connections, it's the people that you open yourself back up to, the people along the way that you start speaking to after you've been hurt, after you've put this guard up. It's the breaking of the walls and who you meet on the other side of that when you're sensitive and you're exploring, what is my heartbreak really about? For me, even though I'll speak about the other, it's really never about the other. It's about me. It's about the ways that I've broken my own heart, what has happened in my life where I've lost elements of my identity, my confidence. And so this was such a moment for me to be able to speak to someone that understands the modeling world to begin with and more than that even just to be in the grips of perfectionism for so many years of one's life 
Laura is someone that has pretty much cured herself of perfectionism. So I really looked up to her as I was speaking to her because I know that I'm someone that's still shackled in many ways by it. I just want to offer so much gratitude to Laura and to my listeners that because they've been willing to be so brave, so brave in sharing and opening their heart with me, that it gives me this opportunity to open myself up as well and to speak about the things that I don't go around and just speak about all the time. And I also want to encourage you that when you're in these moments with other people and you're hearing their story, think about the ways that you can relate and using that meeting point with someone else, use that, take that and start opening up, start sharing yourself. Let everyone that you're in contact with be an opportunity for you to reveal more honestly the weight that you've been carrying through your life. I, again, believe that conversations help us face ourselves, uh, heal ourselves, and admit ourselves. And that is ultimately one of the ways that we become freer in our life. So as always, thank you for being here. Please rate and review this podcast and go by Untethered, sending you all love and just courage to take daring risks in your life and to look back and to celebrate the chances you took. Celebrate those chances. They are, after all, a part of your story. Here we are. It's so nice to connect with you. I've been so excited to talk with you. So, Oh my God. I honestly feel like we have so much in common. It's so weird. Such specific details. Let me just tell you one of them being Sanibel Island, even the shell that Luke gave you. Yeah. Yes. That's where I spent all my childhoods. I'm going next month. Oh, is that weird? That's so weird. And then my first modeling job where I was scouted was for Ralph Lauren for Bruce Weber. Oh my gosh. Is that crazy? What year was that? I was like 10 years old. I'm 34 now. God, so what, the 90s? Wow. Yes. I love that when that happens, when I'm reading somebody's story and there are all these little mating points. and It's incredible. I'm so excited to talk to you. Oh, good. Me too. I want to just get right in and let me just ask you this. Let's just go for it. What does untethered mean to you? Wow. Nobody's ever asked me that before. <laughs> I, I think it really means sort of losing your bearings, just out there grabbing, grasping at things, trying this, trying that, just not being moored. I use a lot of boat analogies in my book about feeling like I was, you know, let go. I couldn't find my way back to the shore, that I was like this boat that was out of harbor, you know, just in a place that's not very, it's sort of um, not weight bearing and it's not very safe. 
and you're just not sure, just a place of not knowing. And, and it's different than being in a liminal space between sort of the now and the not yet. And you sort of know what's coming, but you're just waiting in it. It's more just, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going, what I'm doing. At least that was for me and my story. The part I wrote about was just feeling like I'd lost my way and I didn't know my way back. Did you feel like you lost your way from the moment your brother died? I I did. I felt very much that way. And then when I came to faith that fall, I felt very grounded. I had a focus. I had a community that embraced me. I felt that I'd found my place. And then when like when I went off to the beach, I was on my own and independent. That's when I sort of began losing my way again because I didn't have my parents there, didn't have my structure out of that place. I just, I just went off and, you know, I was young and I was just, I don't know. Searching. You're young and searching. Searching. There you go. I was searching. I was searching. I was, I was searching for affirmation. I was searching for something to fill that hole. And I didn't even realize it until later when I, you know, when I got into my 20s and I was looking back at that time, sort of, sorry. No worries. My husband and my dog are going to leave the premises. (laughs) Get them out of here. Um, (laughs) No worries. (laughs) It wasn't until later when I looked back and I thought, yeah, I was just looking for something to fill that hole I had. And I, I didn't even realize it until later. And I was young and impetuous and careless. And just honestly, when I was 21 and I was living in New York City, I thought I was going to be 21 forever. I felt invincible. I was like, I'm just everything. <laughs> I didn't think about aging. I didn't think about the choices I was making and the consequences I have to live with. It's really just kind of out there just... I thought, probably thought I was being careful and thoughtful, but heck no. (laughs) And yet, because you would get hard on yourself about being in New York and nothing was happening and that you're this failure, the failure to launch. And I'm like, but it's only been four months. Even when you got to a year, I was like, oh my God, I've been here for 10 years. Yeah. And I'm still searching. So... What's interesting is like that angst, I think that a lot of us have that we're not making it yet, that it's not happening fast enough. And of course, in a modeling career, and then you being on your own and having to financially support yourself. But with modeling, there is a sense that like you could become past your prime. Right, definitely. You saw where there was like these sliding doors, like you go to, what was it, Wilhelmina the first time, and they say, we just booked someone that looks just like you. And you think to yourself, if only I hadn't waited, if only I hadn't held myself back, which is such a theme of my life about the ways I've held myself back. But do you look at it now and say it was all meant to happen at that timing? Like, did you really miss anything? (laughs) Someone asked me the other day if I regret going to New York. And I said... No, I don't. I mean, do I regret the pain and the heartache I went through? Yeah, that was hard. Like, would I choose to feel all that again? No, I probably wouldn't choose that. Would I choose what has come out of it and what I've learned and 
the bigger life it's brought me? Absolutely. So the answer is yes, I would do it for where my life has gone out of that. And I, one thing I do know about myself when I was young, I was very much a perfectionist. I was really hard on myself. A lot of it was I had a mom who was very strict with me and I was always trying, I was always thinking, well, if I could just do this right, or if I could do this well enough, then I'll receive that love that I want so much. And she did love me in her own way. I mean, she'd grown up during the depression and, and on a farm with one of eight, seven or eight siblings and you know, she had a hard beginning. And I think a lot of it was, was from that. Um, She did the best she could and loved me in the way she was able to. But I, while I had my father's unconditional love, I wanted my mom's. And so I had this pressure. And then I had this rock star older brother who was just shining and things seemed so effortless for him. And I think that just set a high standard in our family. from my middle brother and myself. And, and I just, as a young girl, I just, everything had to be just so, and just perfect. And so when I went off to New York, as I said, in my book, I didn't want to just model. I wanted to be on the cover of glamour and 17. And, and so I set the bar so high that I, I was probably going to fail. And it was almost, there was, there was a lot of that. I almost feel like there was a bit of self-sabotage in me that um and I definitely walked that out through New York. I mean, I kept my weight just above that plumb line. So when I go in for a job and I didn't get it, I could say, well, it's my weight. But then I'd feel terrible about myself because I think, well, you're the one that's doing that. And so I'd beat myself up and then I'd go do it again. I think I self-sabotaged without knowing it because I realized to get on the covers and to do those things, I would just I had to do things that I just I couldn't even imagine. I didn't have any guidance and it became too frightening for me. And it was easy to self-sabotage and just go home <laughs> and just yeah, escape the whole thing. So that's the way I understand it now. But no, I I don't regret doing it. It's um it's just part of who I am now. And I'm grateful for that girl. I'm we had some fun. <laughs> You certainly seem to. I was like taking notes. I'm like, do these stores still exist? Are these restaurants still here? I literally looked up one of those vintage stores that you went to where you got that slip dress. I was like, that's exactly, I mean, even how you dressed, I was like, that's how I would be dressing. (laughs) It sounded so fabulous. I mean, there's so many parts to talk about though. I don't really know where to begin. I mean, one thing that's interesting is about the self-sabotage and about how having to be at the very top. You know what I'm saying? It's like almost like whether it's planted in us that someone sees us as a star, like sees something so big that we can do, or because of the pressures that we're putting on, it has to be so big. But what's crazy is like we're being put in positions where we could get there. So it's like you were getting through the door, you were getting those meetings. And yet by holding yourself back from it, you really think it's the the fear of who you'd have to become or what you'd have to withstand if you were to succeed. Is that really it? Yeah. I really think, especially with the Revlon contract, it was terrifying. I remember I was dating someone at the time and I remember 
finding a phone booth because, you know, pre-cell phones, of course, and finding a phone booth and calling him and telling him and just saying, he is, he's like, that's great. And I'm going, it's terrifying. Like a million dollars. Like what, what does this mean? I just, I just, I don't know. I had all these ideas of I being in the spotlight. I mean, I, I wasn't a glamour girl in high school. I was this sort of quiet, sweet. I mean, I had fun, but I wasn't, I didn't run with the popular crowd. I had great friends just sort of outside of the popular crowd, but it wasn't like I, I never could make cheerleader because I couldn't do a cartwheel. I mean, I was just sort of this girl who was sort of on the sidelines. And then all of a sudden I meet this handsome boy who goes to New York and he says, you should model. And I sort of, it gave me enough confidence to start modeling. And really it was a very short window from that girl in high school to New York city. So it wasn't like I'd been in the spotlight my whole life. And so I was used to it, or it was something that I really wanted. I, I think I just wanted to be able to say I'd done it, but I'm not sure I understood what was involved in, in a day-to-day practical way. Like this is rejection and it's going to these go and having to tough it up and suck it up and go back again and just go back again and rejection and rejection. And I just wasn't prepared for that. I mean, yeah, because one is that you talk from the beginning of the book about those early days, like when you were young and in high school and comparing yourself to all the other girls and feeling like so underdeveloped, you know, so from the very beginning, I mean, like weight or body image, you know, you felt bad about yourself. You you looked at others as having more than you. And then it's like you meet Steve, Steve the Dream, and he is your first and everything that comes with that and he plan and he's moving to New York and here you your life flashes before you he's leaving he's going to be gone you won't be able to explore this you had you were just beginning again failure to launch and he plants a seed in you that you didn't even know if he was being honest about that you should model and it's like did you ever feel like the modeling was like a way of getting back to Steve or Steve to to see to see that like he was right about you, that you can fulfill the potential, you guys are alike. Yes. You do? I do. I definitely felt that. I felt like, you know, he took off and I thought, well, if I could just do this. And when I started modeling, I don't remember, I mean, it's been a long time. I don't remember thinking, oh, well, I'll do this for a little bit and then I'm going to New York. I just started doing it. I went back to school thinking that I would be happy back in college. I thought, okay, he's gone. I don't want to stay at the beach. I'll go back to college. And I, I didn't want to get, I always wanted to get my degree. I just kept dropping. But I, you know, started modeling and I enjoyed it and it was fun. And that's when I got the idea of going to New York because I was not happy. When I went back to school, I was not happy as I talk about in my book. So between not being happy at school, not wanting to stay there, and then it was summer, school was out, and I'd modeled, and I thought, my mom just said, you can take your money and go back to school, or you can go to New York. And I was like, I'm going to New York. (laughs) So I I really did it on a whim in a way, but um, 
Yeah, it's crazy when I think about it now. When you were taking like the train out there, you know, moving out there for the first time, and like you're saying, doing these things on whim, I mean, it's amazing to think you didn't have a cell phone, you didn't have much money at all, and you always found a way to make it work. And, you know, whether it was looking in the newspaper and finding a job to work at Burger King and them saying you're too pretty for that, which is a whole other, I mean, I've heard that as well. I've done, you know, in order to kind of keep trying to live out my dream, I've done some of these other humbling jobs like you've done. And I've heard that line from people, like you're too pretty to be doing this. Yeah. What did you think of hearing a line like that? I sort of chuckled. I didn't really want to work at Burger King. So I was relieved when she said that to me. And then she said, and then she picks up the phone and she calls Mr. Guterman. And within 10 minutes, you know, I had a job in a restaurant. So I was really relieved. I was, I was desperate. I went down there because I was like, I've got to make some money. I've got to pay my rent. So I was willing to do anything. I mean, there were worse things I could have done. So that was a relief when she said it. I do remember when I worked so hard to get my college degree and I was interviewing on campus because companies used to come to campus. I don't know if they still do, but I had on my little professional suit and I went to interview with a major paper company. And the guy looks at my resume. And I think at the time I put modeling because I wanted people to see why I had dropped out of school why there was this gap. And also that I'd gone to New York city and I'd become a model. And, and I, I know the downside of telling people that, but at the same time I was young and that was my resume and it's what I'd done. And it showed I had gone out and taken some chances. But this guy looks at me and he says, I think you're too pretty to, you know, do this. And I remember being really angry and resentful. I'm like, I've just worked 20 hours a week for two years, put myself through school as an econ major. How dare you say that to me, you know? I mean, and then I didn't even want to work there because I thought, well, if it's if that's how they view me before they even really give me a chance, then I really I don't want to be there. I mean, I don't want somebody that's their first, the first thing out of their mouth to me. Like just because you're pretty, you can't do the job. And as I said in my book, tell me I can't do something and by golly, I'll show you I will. (laughs) And I'm still like that. I mean, I'm like, don't tell me I can't do something because I'll show you. I loved that line. And I was just like, oh, my God, the fire in that is incredible. What's also interesting, though, is that like internally for a lot of perfectionists and self-sabotagers, they're saying to themselves, you can't do this. You can't do, I can't do this. I can't do this. And yet, why is it when it's coming from within, when we're telling ourselves we can't do something, we don't have that same fight that says, I'm going to prove myself wrong. Yeah, that's, that's too bad, isn't it? I don't know. I mean, I just, well, the whole thing of perfectionism and and trying to prove ourselves all the time or please other people or whatever it is, it's just, it's coming from a place of woundedness or, or insecurity. There's something there that's creating that. So until that's healed, as you know, we can't come from a place of strength. So of course it will be very difficult to find that within ourselves. And that's why we are always looking to others for the affirmation. I I am happy to report that I am no longer a perfectionist. 
I just don't really, I can acknowledge I used to be and I no longer am. I really, I know that I'm just going to do my best and I, and I always give it my hundred percent and things don't quite go the way they should. It's like, it's fine. You know, I'll bounce back. I think I've lived enough to realize that, you know, there's rarely perfect and I don't want to be perfect anyway. And who is, and, um, they're just other better ways to strive and think than perfectionism for me anyway. I mean, I don't say that to disparage anyone who struggles with that because I know it's a real struggle. I mean, having been that way, but, um, but I also say on the other side of it, I just have a deeper understanding of how to live. I just don't want to live with that pressure. It's incredibly toxic, you know, and I've been living with it. Sometimes I think I have more of a a handle on it than others. And I realize, oh my God, no. I mean, maybe I'm not as much of a perfectionist in my writing, let's say, as a writer. But then I go on and I become a bigger perfectionist when I'm podcasting. Or if it's not about my body, it's about the way that I speak. And I look at everyone thinking that they struggle with this too. And maybe they don't. And and people actually, like you're saying, you don't anymore. And I just can't imagine the relief. I mean, what is on the other side of this? To free yourself of perfectionism, what do you feel like you're walking around with on a day-to-day basis now that you didn't have before? I just show myself a lot of grace. I forgive myself a lot. Now, when it came to my book, so I, I'll speak to this. When when I was editing, going through the final edits of my book, I was getting my pages and I was doing those last proofs where I was reading it. It was it was already in a, well, I guess it was in a pages form, but it hadn't yet gone to the printer. And I still had an opportunity to make changes. And I read and reread and reread. And it wasn't that I wanted my book to be perfect because no book is ever perfect. But I knew there was something in me that knew that, okay, you have the time, you have the, you know, you're you're privileged to have this time to read and to really make it better so that you're happier with it because once it's in print you have to live with it the rest of your life I mean there's no changing and it's done and I just thought it's it's not that I want to be perfect but I wanted to it to be I wanted to put the best product I could out into the world because I just loved it so much and I thought you have if you know yes you may have to read it and read it and you may have to do two or three readings this week And that's going to be draining and take time. But I was willing to do that because I wanted my book to be where I would look at a word and go, oh, I just used that word two sentences before. And that may seem like perfectionism, but to me, it was just fine. I mean, I love editing anyway, so it was fun for me. It wasn't something I hated. Like a challenge, a challenge to think of another word. It was, it was challenging. That's the word. And it, I thought, wow, I get to make this the most beautiful book. I can make it. And then when I let it go, I can rest and knowing that I did this good, hard work and it was worth it. And I do feel that way now. I mean, I, there are a lot of people that say they never read their book or they never even pick it up. And, and I mean, I may feel that way one day and I may get to that point, but now I can pick it up and, and I can find places where I fine-tuned it and I go, yes, 
you know, like I'm really glad I spent time with that one little section because I can, I see the difference. The reader may not see it, but I know. So I love challenges and I will work hard and I will give my everything to something that's different than setting it up as perfectionism. To me, it's like, I just know what I want to accomplish in something. And then I just, I go at it and I just do my very best. And then I just walk away. And then if something's not quite right, or I was on a podcast once and I completely misused a word. And after it was over, I was thinking back and I thought, oh, I said this. And I went, oh, that was not the right word. That just, I sound so dumb. And I, and I wrote the guy and I said, Hey, you know, could you edit this word out? Like, and he said, I haven't edited a podcast in 15 years. He said, I say things wrong all the time. And he said, people like me for it because I'm human. And he said, if it's okay with you, let's just keep it real. And I thought, good, great. Wow. It just made me look like, Oh, she didn't know what that word meant or she misused it. And I thought, you know what? That's right. I am human and I used the wrong word. Okay, great. We all do that from time to time. I mean, I heard somebody pretty famous on their podcast the other day misuse the word and I was like, oh, good. <laughs> you know, we all do this, you know, and you've done 200. So maybe you have a similar story. I mean, it's not, it doesn't happen once an episode, it happens consistently. <laughs> I mean, I was at a dinner two nights ago and they were saying something like, honey comes from bees. And I was like, oh yeah, like milk comes from cows. And they looked at me like, (laughs) you know, that is like my life story. But you know what? It adds some personality, right? Because a lot of us, true perfectionism, if we're actually living up to it, in many ways it can look to other people like that you can't say anything at all. You can't have fun with yourself. You take yourself so seriously all the time. And it's so free and refreshing. And I think it's encouraging for other people to ultimately, I believe, to see some people out there that aren't in the moment editing themselves. You know, it's yes, it's one thing afterwards to listen to yourself over and go back over the narrative you said and choose differently. But in the moment with people... I mean, just to have people's presence and that they're not so up in their head thinking about the way they, and you might appreciate this probably because why I get amped about it is because having been a young model and then gaining weight, that feeling and hearing people and then developing this self-criticism, this self-consciousness that plagued my minute to minute to minute existence. Seriously. I mean, no joke, a voice that was always in my head and trying to come up with scenarios where I could become free of that voice. I mean, that's how people, you know, get into addictions of all sorts, eating disorders, you know? So it's just, I know that I mess up these days. I know that I, I, I hear myself back and I sound too excited or I think I sound dumb and all this stuff, but I'm like, at least I'm not in my way in the moment with people anymore. I might criticize in reflection and be like, oh, I wish I'd done that differently, but it's that's so much better than when I used to be with people and only be thinking about myself, my performance. One of the things when I was listening to some of your episodes, I told my husband, I said, she seems so present with the people she's talking to. I really like that about her. And I, so I'm just complimenting you because I, 
because I, I sense that, you know, I was listening and you were very responsive and you were, I mean, the questions you would ask people after they said something as like, she's listening, she's engaged. It's one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you, but yeah, I think it's very freeing. I mean, I think one of the lessons I learned from my, my brother dying is, and it's so, it's so funny. I mean, I, the night I had the epiphany about life is short and you need to take risks and dream big, but I have always been so aware from the age of 14, how fragile life is and, and that it's just not guaranteed. I mean, the one thing I learned from my brother who had this huge life ahead of him is that, you know, who knows we have right now. And a lot of, I think as, as a young person, one of the reasons I did so many impulsive things was because I felt that I was like, I've got to do these things now because who knows? And it was this impulsive thing. And now it's just more of this embracing things, taking, still taking chances, looking for adventure because life is short and I am getting older and I just know there are no guarantees. And I think, yeah, I'm going to do this. Sure. I'm going to take this chance. I'm going to write this book. I'm going to, because I want to have as many, I still want to have as many adventures as possible. I'm still that adventurous girl. I mean, I haven't changed a bit in that respect. Really? Yeah. You're still on rooftops nude with someone. I couldn't believe the way that you live. No, I haven't done that in a while. But, you know, I'm married to a, my husband is a writer and he's, um, he loves to travel and we live in the woods by a lake and we have a very needy rescue dog. That's why I sent him out of the house. (laughs) I love, I adore him, but, (laughs) but, you know, we're great collaborative, creative partners. Like he, he writes plays and, um, he's an international branding consultant, and he bases his work on primitive archetypes. So it's really interesting. And so I love what he does. He's been so supportive of me. I mean, I'm he's my biggest fan. And, you know, it's just been fun. Like, we have fun. Even during the pandemic, we actually got closer. I mean, we sheltered seriously. We, we just started sheltering on, like, March 14th. And we stayed in and I mean, we had a grandson in the middle of it and I would go visit my daughter when I was vaccinated, but I really didn't do anything else. And I didn't see my other two daughters very much. One was a nurse. So we had to be really careful with her. She was still going to the hospital and my other daughter, you know, we talked and we tried to respect how everybody felt, but she was working at home and they were trying to be careful too. So we, you know, I didn't hug her for almost a year. I'd see her, we'd go see each other, but we we all just tried to be really super careful because we wanted to be together on the other side of this. So it was hard, but my husband and I, you know, we got into our routine and we, like I said, we live in this beautiful place, but I mean, we just hunkered down. We actually got closer through it all. And we lost his mom during COVID just to, um, she was elderly. We lost her to dementia and um, that was hard. And we lost my dog that I'd had for 15 years. So but I, I spent a lot of that time. I was not able to write, which was fine because I had this book coming out and I was working on it. But I did a lot of reading. I just read voraciously. And I thought a lot about how am I going to live when this is over? That's how I spent my time because I thought, how many times the rest of my life will I go through another pandemic? Lord knows. I hope never. 
And I thought, there's something about this time that when will I ever have all this time to think, read, pray, you know, sort of question, think. And um, I just tried to take advantage of it. Like when I was on bed rest with my twins, I would read 15 books because I thought, when am I ever going to have this kind of time again with twins? I'm very resourceful. I try to just, you know, when I see an opportunity, I kind of go, well, this sucks, but you know, I try to think of it in a way like, how can this be useful or how can I make the best of this? And it's not that I wasn't, you know, scared, miserable some days, missing going out, missing traveling, just like everybody else. But I also tried to just say, you know, this is a time because this won't always be here. And then when you're on the other side, how has it changed you? And what have you learned? And what will you, will you do anything different? Or will you just, you know, it was so profound to me, what we all went through. And it was just, I mean, wow. And I sort of fine tuned things. And I thought, okay, when this is over, I'm just hitting the floor running and going with my life and have things to do. So that's, that's how I dealt with it. Oh, my God. So it was a love story for you. I mean, you grew deeper in love. Yeah. And I'm grateful. I mean, we all, we all got through it. We're all, we're all healthy. And um, yeah, now my book is out and that book is just opening up doors that I just never dreamed possible, you know? Really? Yeah. Like being here with you. I'm just meeting wonderful people. I mean, I'm just meeting these amazing people. It's just the best. And isn't it great to see that in a way, just like to not have something tied to your looks for it to have been like your story, like people are sitting with you because of your story, not because you're the right weight. Right. Ah, only people knew that this was actually, you know, the dream. Just in listening to you, I've been thinking like, God, I wonder if part of it is like at all like survivor's guilt. You know, it's like in one sense, wanting to be so big and and have your mom proud of you and your parents, you know, because after losing a brother, that was a star. He was bigger than life, you know? And I mean, it's painful. And like seeing your mom change after that and the look in her eyes, and I've seen that before. And it's haunting. It's haunting. There is survivor's guilt. And I just wonder if that influenced anything at all for you. I think I've always been really resourceful. And I, I think, you know, going to New York at the age I was at, tw- I was 19, I turned 20 that first fall and just, you know, almost out of money going, applying for that job, just beating the pavement. I mean, that really, in a lot of ways, yes, I was very vulnerable and green, but in a way I did have had to learn how to survive. And then I came home, I married quickly. And I, I, what happened is I just, my self-esteem and, you know, having done this, been in this business, my self-esteem was completely shattered and having botched that million dollar contract, you know, which I, I, I didn't tell anybody about because I just thought they think, well, what happened? And they start asking questions I didn't want to answer. And, you know. But I came home and and my self-esteem was shot. And I honestly remember thinking, oh, I've lived this big life. And I, I think I talked about it in my book when my mom asked me, you know, well, have you prayed about 
getting married and are you ready? And I thought I lived at the beach and I went to New York City and I was a model and I have, you know, I'm this mature older woman, you know, at the age of 21. And I really thought I had lived this big life. I'd seen the world, you know, and I, I thought I'm ready to settle down and I'm, you know, I have lived so quickly, so much so quickly and then jumped into this marriage. And um, even though I had red flags and what happened is I started trying these things as I talk about in my book, you know, I, I played the piano for a performance and I did a little modeling and I, and people were affirming me outside of my marriage. Also, I started to come back into who I was, you know, this girl who wanted to get her college degree, who wanted to be successful at something, who wanted to be affirmed outside of my looks And so I was testing the waters. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I was like, well, maybe I can model again and, or, or, you know, I'm really good at playing the piano or photography. Yeah. Or I'll get this job in this retail store and I'm really good at selling clothes. And I was just testing the waters to see where I was going to land. And in the midst of that, I was in this marriage that I had chosen, but it, it was keeping me tamped down. And so, because I chose someone, I think in a way that would do that. And also because I married in a very insecure place, just like, it's sort of like, oh, I'm going to attach myself to this person and, and I'm going to feel better about myself. And I did initially, but then as I started to bloom and I was, I was getting a little older and I was trying to find my way in the world the only way I could do that was just to break out and to go find, and I, you know, went back to school and because of the one thing I did know that I wanted was to finish college. I mean, I'd always wanted to do that. It wasn't even a question. So I knew that was for certain, that was something I could do. And it, I, I'm sure that part of when I left the marriage and went back to school, that that was sort of like something I could do that would be legitimate that people would say, well, at least she's in college. Yes, her marriage failed, but at least she's finishing her college degree. You know, so it was something that was that would to people. And and at the time it was in the early 80s. I mean, divorce was still so taboo, especially in the South. It was just, you know, um, in my culture, it was very hush hush and it was a very shameful thing still back then. So um you know, going back to school gave me something to focus on and to strive for. And then I I did get my degree and it felt really good. I was really proud. I'm still very proud of that, um, working so hard. But I just, I've always been one just to do the next thing. I mean, I I look at my life and I, I I told my daughters when they were, one of my daughters was, she was late twenties, early thirties. And she, um, she majored in journalism and she was working in some marketing firms and she'd been doing it for a while, like five years. And she was trying to figure out what, what I want to do. Like, do I want to keep doing this? I don't know. And so I took her away to the beach one weekend and I just said, let me, I'm just going to tell you about my life. And I, and I went through and I said, I did this and I went to New York and then I ended up and I never used my degree and I ended up in advertising. And then through that, I became a copywriter. 
And then I became a mom and then I started to do some nonprofit work. And then all of a sudden I was on Twitter and I met this person who lived in the UK and he did travel writing. And so I started doing that. And then something else happened and I did this and I said, I've just gone from one thing to the next. And it's like, when you put yourself out there and you're open and curious doors open. And when I look at my resume now, nothing I ever did except for maybe the modeling was lucrative at all. But I go, wow, you've had a lot of fun. You've done some really fun, interesting things with your life. Like there's not a job on my resume that I go, oh God, I hated that one. I became a kindergarten teacher for 15 years. I mean, I just, you know, I walked into my husband and I were were living in the mountains and we were talking about moving back to the triangle area. And I was at church one Sunday and a friend of mine just made a beeline to me and she just looked at me and she said, Do you want to teach kindergarten? And I said, uh, I don't have a, I don't have a teaching degree. My mother was a teacher, but I had homeschooled my daughters for three years, but I said, I can't teach. And she said, Oh, you don't need a degree. She says, you don't need to be certified because it was a small school starting up. And she said, I'm going to tell, you know, the headmaster about you. And two days later I came down to interview and then he offered me the job and and then I ended and I told him, it's funny when I quit after 15 years, he laughed and he said, you know what you said to me when you took this job? And I said, no. And he said, you said you were just going to do it for a couple of years and then you're going to stop and write your book. And I laughed and I said, I did. I didn't even remember saying that. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, 15 years later, but then I did write my book. I loved kindergarten. It was fun. And it was a great way. My kids were at the school with me when they were younger and I could be with them in the afternoons. Because I'm love being a mom, and I just loved being with my kids. And and even though I didn't make very much, and I usually had to work a second job, I, you know, I got to be with my kids, and um, and it was it was good. And then when the time was right, I, you know, I was able to stop and write full time. You know, I'm 65, <laughs> and it's like okay but you've enjoyed it all the way there. I've enjoyed it. And it's all been good. And I look back and I you know when I was teaching, I wanted so badly to be able to write full time and write a book, but it just wasn't the right time. I, I had to make a living and I had to work. And, but I always did some writing. That's the thing. One thing I try to tell people, young people, I say, you know, you may have this idea of writing a book, but I said, you may not be able to write the book right now, but you can be writing. So I. I worked for nonprofits as the communications director. I did this travel writing. I I decided that um, a friend of mine had serialized her first novel in a newspaper, and she got the idea from Charles Dickens for the Pickwick Papers because he did that. He used to serialize his novels in the newspaper, so people would run down every week and pick up the paper and say, "What's the next? You know, what happens next?" So she had done that. It was wildly popular, and she ended up publishing with Penguin and was a New York Times bestseller. And when I was teaching, and I thought I was, I had thought about writing a book about how to prepare a child for kindergarten because I've, I've been doing it a while. And I went down to the newspaper and I said, they didn't have a parenting column. And I said, would you like to have a parenting column? And he said, we'd love it. Can you still do that? Yeah. I mean, this was only, this was 10 years ago. You know, a lot of papers will have a syndicated parenting column, but they didn't have one. So, 
So they sent a photographer out to my classroom and they took pictures and did this big feature on me. And then I wrote my column for two years and I wrote the book by writing my column. When I finished my, you know, after two years, I got to the end of my book and I was done and I stopped. But but I I thought, you know, it was a way because every Thursday I had to turn something into my editor. So I was just writing a chapter at a time. So did I write my book while I taught for 15 years? No. Did I write? Did I grow? Did I have fun? Did I learn? Did I meet amazing people? Did I have all these incredible experiences? Absolutely. It was a waste of time. And everything I did prepared me for this. Yes. Everything I did. I mean, I've had several people say, were you ever a copywriter? And I, <laughs> I laugh and I say, yeah, for eight years. And they say, your writing is very concise. It's very sort of, you know, fragmented sentences and this kind of thing. And I write like a copywriter because I don't, I'm not a literary writer. My writing style is different and it comes out of the copywriting, I think. Just say it. Which made the voice so consistent throughout. And you like, and to think it was always interesting to me because I didn't feel like your mind or the way you were talking was shifting through the years. So you always seemed like the same person. And you've said that though, that you said that you're still the same. I am. I am the same. I think I've become more who I think I really am. Like, I feel like I've, I'm all the time coming into more, like, I feel so comfortable in my skin now. And having talked about our skin, you and I (laughs) earlier, you know, that's huge because, um, I, I mean, one of the gifts of getting older is really you just you just feel so much. I mean, I know that's not true of everyone. And so I do want to hold space for people that aren't there and people that are still struggling. But at the same time, I do think you care less and less. And I had read a book years ago by Christine Northrop. She wrote a book about women's bodies. And she said something that was so fascinating to me. And at the time, my daughters were, I have three daughters. At the time, they were around probably 10 to 12 or so, maybe a little younger, 9 to 11. And she talked about how our bodies are made so, our hormones are made so that in the early years, we're more um, estrogen focused. So, and that's a nurturing kind of hormone where we're focused on our bodies you know, the whole reproductive thing and nurturing. And that as we get older, our estrogen decreases, but our testosterone increases. And what happens is you get older and it's, it's very evolutionary in that we go from focusing on our home and our children and our marriages and all that to looking out into the world. And she talks about it, I guess, around age, as I remember, it's a long time ago, but around age 50, how you become more outward focused. And that's why so many older women are activists and they get involved in causes and they're so fierce about things because they, they've done that. And now they're turning to focus on something else. And it doesn't mean you stop, but it, your focus changes. And, and I, I've seen that happen in me, just um, my daughters have launched. I mean, they're in their thirties now they're your age. My twins are your age. And, um, and then my youngest daughter is 31. You know, they're all doing really well and, and I'm very close to them. And um, they've just been so great about my book. (laughs) 
people said, what did your daughters think of your book? <laughs> you know, and, and I, and I was nervous about having them read it, but you know, they, they're at a great age to read it and they, they love me. And, you know, I said, just keep reading. It gets better. <laughs> and, um, and I wanted to give them the gift of seeing what their dad and I were like in the early days of our marriage before they were, you know, when they were young, they don't know sort of how we met, how we fell in love. And that was important to me to give them that. And then they never knew my parents because my parents, my dad died before they were born. And then my mom died a year after the twins were born from her cancer. So she was able to hold them, but she, she never met my, my youngest daughter. And um, so I wanted to give them the gift too, of getting to know my parents, um, you know, telling their story. And even though my mom had her struggles, it's good for them to know. I mean, it's good for children to know the mental health struggles in their family and to understand. That, and I think it's cool for them to see, you know, to trace the evolution of your relationships, to see what ultimately led to you choosing their father. Mm-hmm. I, I thought about, because I related to this too, about like from the first person I was with, that he was with someone else at the time. Like, I was always the other woman. I just thought it was so interesting that that was part of your story and it it stayed with you for a while. And then you ended up having an affair. How did you heal from all of that? Because you had this feeling of disgust with yourself a lot of the time that you, you were even chasing men and chasing sex or using sex for validation. Like, how did you heal from that? Because when people say, did you regret New York? I don't think there's anything regrettable about your story in New York. Like, I really I really feel it, probably because I've, I've been there. But I imagine they're saying that because of the heartbreak of all the men. That's why they're asking you. Yeah, they are. I think they are asking me for that reason. It took me a long time to heal from that. I mean, I... You know, I've had to do a lot of work. I didn't start therapy until I was, I don't know, in my 40s, maybe. Um, That was good. That really, I started with my, you know, my past stories and sort of worked through those earlier things that I wrote about in my book and did all that work the first years I was in therapy to sort of unpack all that, you know realizing that I had a lot of that baggage and I needed to sort of figure out how that had impacted me and impacting current relationships and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, the shame thing was very hard. And when I, I wrote about, I've talked about this a lot and written articles, but when I was writing my book, the shame came back because I, the way I wrote my book was I, it's interesting. You said that, that I sound like the same person throughout because I, I tried to go back and enter into the skin of whatever age I was at the time. So when I was writing the first chapter, I was 14. So I'm trying to use a 14-year-old girl's voice, you know, to tell that story, not to sound like a woman in her 60s looking back telling it, but actually it being my voice as a young girl. And then the girl at the beach, you know, that 20-year-old sort of excitable girl be that girl when I wrote that part. Yes, how you talked about passion changed. That's interesting. How you talked about the experiences with men. Yeah, it changed because I I literally, I mean, Mary Carr, who wrote The Art of Memoir, she says to zip yourself up in the character's skin. And I was my character, right? 
I was my protagonist. So I had to zip myself up in the skin of whatever age I was writing from. And I would literally sit here at my desk and drop into whatever scene it was just like and close my eyes. And so all of a sudden I was in the nags header in Steve's room. And I remember the wood paneling and his barbells laying there and the curtain billowing. And I just, I would just try to like almost like time travel and just try to recall all that. Just this, the sensual visual visceral kind of feelings like what did the air feel like and how what was I feeling was my stomach fluttering was I nervous was I and that's what I had to do because it was so long ago I had to do that to make it seem very present for the reader and it seemed like present day the whole time did it I think doing that really made a difference because I I wasn't thinking about oh what am I going to write you know a month down the road or what about this thing I have to deal with I just literally would just like shut down from everything else and just focus and so for the few days I'd be writing a certain scene or a chapter I would just you know I would be at the beach or I would just be at New York and I just immerse and when I was done I would be completely exhausted and have to take a few days and sort of regroup and then I'd be turning to some other thing but I, I a lot of the shame came back and I I would get to the place where because a lot of the things I had buried really deeply and I hadn't talked about with anyone or or I just had pushed them down so far because you just want to pretend they never happened. And I, I would have to just push through that. And my, um, my writing coach told me at the beginning of our, our working together, she said, I will tell you that a lot of the memorists I work with have breakdown, some kind of breakdown while they're writing their book. And I went, okay, noted. Wow. And I'm really good at self-care. I, I know how to, I know what I need. I sense things in my body when I'm like holding stress. I, I know when my breath is in my chest. I know when I'm exhausted. And so I, I'm really good at doing the things I need to do to take care of myself. And I just thought, you know what, you have got to ramp it up because if that is what happens, you really need to pay attention while you're writing. So, you know, just taking three days off after I'd write a hard place or, you know, going out in nature a lot, walking around. I was doing Pilates at the time and med- I started meditating. Yeah, I got through it. I didn't have a breakdown, not even close. I mean, but I, but I really do give that, you know, the self-care I did was, I think, really helpful for me while I was doing it. But yeah, because I was dealing with a lot of old emotions and then, you know, just my mom and her her depression and then my dad dying. And, you know, there, I read a lot of hard things and just a lot of the things I did that I was ashamed of. And when I finished my book, I gave it to my therapist to read. And I said, well, you read this and just tell me what you think. I didn't, I could have easily, you know, said, tell me if you see this, this, and this. And I decided not to, I thought I'm just going to let her feed, give, give me feedback. And so when she finished it, she read it and she she loved it. And I said, well, just answer one question for me. Do I sound like a victim? Mm. And she said, no, not at all. She said, you completely own what you did. She said, you take responsibility. You reflect on the choices you made. And I said, was I too hard on it? Like I was especially concerned about my first husband being too hard on him. 
And she said, no, she said, you're honest, but you're, she said, I feel like you're, you also take responsibility for the things you did and the ways you contributed. And I wanted to, you know, I mean, I, the last thing on earth I want to be as a victim, I don't find it very attractive. I don't think that you came across as a victim at all. If anything, I think, I think people could be like, she's the villain, like a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) I've had a review or two that, you know, that happens in memoir. And another thing that I, my coach has told us, my publisher, she said, a lot of people, when they review memoir, read memoir, they, if they don't like what the person did, then they eviscerate the person. So it's not about, was the writing good? Was it beautiful? Was it a compelling story? Was it well-written? It's about, I just don't, I don't like her. Yeah. I don't want to identify with that. Yeah. She stopped on so many hearts and she did this and she did that. And, um, and I, you know, I've had two little mild things like that, but I, I knew they were coming. I knew there, there will be more. Well, I took a class with Brene Brown in 2013. She only did it once. I think she was giving so much value. I think she decided not to do it, but it was called Courage Works. And it was like these videos and a whole notebook. And we were in a group and it was one of the most amazing things I've ever done. But I mean, we had homework every week and then she'd do these videos and we were reading through the books. And But um, one of the things she talked about is doing a post-it note. And she said, you need to have a post-it note of all the people that matter. And she said, they should only fit on a post-it note. There should only be 10 or 12. She said, these are the people that you can call at three in the morning, the people whose opinions matter. And she said, put it up by your computer. She said, if you get this review or somebody says something, look at your post-it note and say, are they on there? I have mine right here. You know, are they on there? No. Well, then it doesn't matter what they think because these are my people. And so I have it right here. I had it up the whole time I was, and I've added a few people and I've taken a few people off, but, and then another thing she said is she said that there will be critics and that you need to reserve a seat for them because they will come. And she said, but this is what you say. And there's a video of this. She says, I see you. I hear you. I'm going to do this anyway. And the fourth thing is I'm not interested in your feedback. (laughs) Isn't that great? And she says, you have to stay in your values. And my two values are actually the same as hers. They're courage and faith. So the first thing you do when you're criticized is you go back to your, your integrity. Like what is, what are my core values And am I being true to those? So if being courageous is one of my values, then part of being courageous is putting a book out there that's complicated and very vulnerable and very honest and candid and realizing that if you do that, there are going to be people that don't like it or don't understand or don't agree or whatever it is. But but if you need to tell your truth and need to tell your story that that's okay, but their opinion really doesn't matter. So that's easier said. I sound like I'm just, I've got it all together, but um, (laughs) it is definitely, that's why it's written here because I may need to refer to it, but, um, but I think it's really good advice. I think it's really wise because, you know, the criticism will come, you understand it will come and you have to say, why am I doing this? Why is this important? Why am I going to keep doing it? And 
who am I listening to? First, I have to listen to my heart. And then the people around me that I immediately care about, their opinions. And other than that, honestly, just can't please everybody. I mean, it's just not going going to happen. I used to, when I was in high school, I had tagged all over my bedroom, criticism is inspiration. And I had a blog before blogs were popular. And I would put myself out there so much. And I didn't want to ever do the highlight reel. I've never believed in that in life, like using social media for the highlights. I thought that people saw me in this like kind of higher way, like that I was always happy or, you know, so I wanted people to know the darkness, like the other relatable side. And I, you know, got a lot of attention and a lot of criticism at a very, very young age coming out of having been a model and kind of losing it. And then I had that. So I was using words to shape another image and got all this criticism and it's been weird because I always thought that I was comfortable with it. I've always said criticism is inspiration. I always put myself out there. But I remember that ultimately, like what all those words and those blogs, it, it took so much resilience to keep on going and, and to be unaffected. Like I've always like, stand your ground. Don't let people like, you know, be stronger than them, better than their words. But you know, when people started really like saying horrible things about my eating disorder or like celebrating my eating disorder, because, you know, there's a ton of people that do that, you know, they want to be as thin as that, but there was such a mix or such an extremist and no one really like in a, no one in a private way asking, how are you? You know, never in a private way. And I don't think I realized until recently what that did and maybe the ways that like I'm scared to put or take myself to the next level or put my podcast on video and use the video because I want that so bad. I so badly, like I don't want to just for me, like write and podcast and be hiding my image because of what I had an eating disorder. And I realize I'm scared of, of the comments, actually the criticism because I think I'm beyond it, but I know what it did. You know, I think I'm beyond it, but what it did was so traumatizing, like having an eating disorder, and I've never explored it. Like I haven't, I haven't explored it. I'd go to therapists under the thing, like for your eating disorder, and we never spoke about it. We always talked about the guy I was dating. It was like such a joke, you know? It's just interesting, like hearing you talk about going to therapy and spending years talking about the early stuff. I've never spent years. I've written about the early stuff, but like, wow, like what could that do? Like actually pointing to light and saying, I'm going to spend, like you say self-care, I'm going to spend years investing in myself to know. And I think about like the patterns I've had and probably from the outside, you know, that maybe, maybe I am replaying it all because I've never actually addressed it with someone or in a way that wasn't just reliving it through writing and kind of coming to new understanding, but was like on a fundamental thing. Like I had this guy, I interviewed this guy, I, I'm doing this new project, trying it where I put my hinge in LA and I interview guys for the podcast and I don't know, just see if we connect. And this guy said something so wise to me last night, my first one though. And he said something, you know, he'd, he's been in therapy and 
something about like how it chips away at your soul, all these things so long and the hole goes so deep that to rebuild yourself, think about how far down it goes. And I have always, I think, you know, been looking for the quick fix my whole life. And I get it now, just like what it made me realize is like that people that do dedicate themselves to therapy, that really do. I started to realize like, I really admire it and I can relate to the fear of starting. I didn't think I could, but I relate to it because you don't know how deep it goes and what it means on the other side of confronting and understanding and freeing yourself from the things that have haunted you and all the ways you've been trying to cope with it. I so agree with that. And I think it's so easy these days with social media and just, you know, podcasting, whatever it is, you know, to just, there's always sort of a next shiny thing that you can hide behind. And maybe it's a good thing. I mean, some shiny things are great, but when you're seeking refuge in it to, and you don't even, like you said, you're not even aware that maybe I'm just hiding behind the next thing. And I mean, I'm sure I did that for years too, but I think writing my book was really cathartic for me. And that, you know, when I started writing it, I knew there were some things I was facing in my brother's death and my parents dying, my mom's health struggle, mental health struggles, and some of the choices I'd made. But like, there were things that came up in the writing that I buried so deep that just like, all of a sudden it was like, they were there and I had to deal with them and I had to wrestle with them. And it was, you know, I mean, writing a book, it became like therapy. I didn't start out to do that. A lot of people do. They say, I'm going to write this book because I know it will help me to deal with this trauma I've had or whatever. But for me, I didn't, I thought, well, I I will write about these things. It'll be good for me. But I, I didn't know the extent it would just really just dig out some of that woundedness and force me to deal with it. And I think one of the things I've never really had specific therapy about is sort of childhood trauma. You know, like I've, I've dealt with a lot of sort of the things from past my brother's death, but just sort of like my upbringing and that kind of thing. And um, I've thought, yeah, maybe I need to like you, you know, oh, maybe this is something I need to do some exploration in and because it it doesn't go away (laughs) and I think we can ignore it push it away cover it with something but you know I think it I mean you're at just the perfect age honestly to start exploring some of those things because you if you're curious and you really have a heart to want to sort of understand it and let it inform you as you become older and i I think it could be a beautiful thing. It could just be life-giving to you in a way. Um, so I encourage you if you feel led to do that. But but I also think you need to pay attention when, when you're thinking of like, oh, I should do this. And then you feel that like, I don't think I'm ready. Like, I think this is too vulnerable for me right now. I can feel that, pay attention to that because that is telling you something. And do you wish you were ready? Maybe, but if you're not, you're not. And there's no need to push yourself and put yourself out in this place where people are going to eviscerate you and you're going to, it's going to be so more damaging to you. Then you're going to retreat and then you've got more work to do, you know? So, so it's so important to pay attention to 
those feelings when you're considering what, what whether to do something or not, or just to really explore and give yourself time. You know, don't, I mean, I think just to give yourself time to really sit in it and just, and go, no, I'm just not ready or whatever it is. But, you know, when I give these little answers, like, I see you, I hear you, you know, I'm not interested in your feedback. I mean, it all sounds like I've got to sew together, but honestly, you know, I got those reviews and for a couple of days, you know, you're just like, oh, and you have to just work through it. But then at some point I had to just go, you know what? Okay. I've thought about this enough. I don't want to obsess and I just need to move on. And there's a lot of love out there for my book. And like, I'm going to focus on that. And it's been good. I mean, I don't really, I've decided I just don't have time for any negativity and there hasn't been a lot, but um, you know, like I said, I'm prepared. It will come. And um, I just have to be in a strong, solid place and know that my book is my story. It, you know, I told it as best as I could and then how people respond to it. I can't do anything about that. And, you know, at the end of the day, they're responding. And it's a reminder that you've done something to show up, which is a hard thing to do. You know, it's such an achievement. So it's like if people are commenting in any capacity, praising or criticizing it, it still is evidence that you did something with your life. You know what I'm saying? It's like, so, I mean, you're winning. So you are winning in the end, either way. (laughs) You are. Yeah, you too. You're showing up too all the time. And I think it's beautiful. And, you know, I applaud you. I really, I love that you're doing this. I honestly could talk to you for so long. You, I mean, there's just so much to learn. It's amazing. I get your, your children are lucky to have you. I hope they take advantage of it. I hope they take advantage of it. It's hard when it's your own mom, I realize, you know, to ask for all the wisdom or want to know all these angles on their story. But there's just so many, like, I feel like you're, you're someone that would be good to speak to about some, like any topic. There's so many topics that I could choose. And I'd be like, oh, I want to know your take on this, like your encouragement, your guidance. I really feel that with you. I do. Oh, thank you. My audience for my book is, I thought it would be mostly women my age. I thought, well, there are a lot of women out there who've had similar stories who grew up in the 70s and 80s. And and it was just a different time back then. I mean, it was pre-AIDS. It was, you know, it, it was just a, it was a very free time where people just, you know, <laughs> They were just more ready to jump into things. Um, and I thought, well, I know there are a lot of women out there that have sort of buried that and my story will resonate and they'll nod their heads and go, yes. But what my publisher said, no, I think you'll appeal to girls in their 20s and 30s because who are just starting out and they want to see, well, okay, she did all these things. She made some wrong decisions. She fell on her face, but she got back up and her life didn't end. And she had some fun and she grew and she learned a lot. And, you know, that's the message I want to give to young women and my daughters too. It's just that, you know, yeah, you'll, you know, you'll make choices. You'll do things. Things won't work out jobs, relationships. And, but if you, you know, get back up, brush yourself off, heal, you know, give yourself, be good to yourself and then stay open and don't close up and just, Life can be full of surprises, really good ones sometimes. I heard recently that kind of like within every moment, there's like three different life paths. 
you know, it's like every choice that we choose right now gives us, leads us to another opportunity. But if we had chosen another one, our life could go in it. You know, and it's like, whoa. You know, if like you, if you go to a restaurant and you choose this restaurant, then you choose at that restaurant to give this person your number. Like, but if you don't do any of those things, that won't happen. Another path's going to happen. And I feel that with your book. I think it's interesting just you never know who your audience maybe is. And I think it's so incredible to think, you know that people in the 70s are going to relate to this, but it's so like enhancing to realize like, wow, this whole other group that I didn't even think would get me completely gets me. And I, I was so good at writing this that I captured that essence that they would, they would feel like they are me, you know? So it's, it also speaks to your talent. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're so kind. <laughs> I really appreciate it. You're welcome. One more question. Um, well, two, but I coined the word break upward and I'm curious what it might mean to you. Hmm. Well, for me, just what we've been talking about, just that Yes, you will have heartache and you will make choices and do things that just sometimes are devastating or or things will happen to you in your life that are out of your control, of course, right? But that um, if you can move through it, try to find some healing, some help. And really for me, I try to learn from the things I go through. I feel like just having an attitude of learning, like, well, this is awful, but surely I can learn something from it, you know, and, and then to take that wisdom you gain in those hard things and then just move forward. And, um, and then it, it's like looking up, it's just like saying, okay, I'm going to continue to be open and hopeful no matter what's happened. And so that's, that's what I think it means for me. And then where can my audience find you? I see the dog is back. My dog's back. <laughs> um, my website is laurawhitfield.com. And my book's there, my blog, events, my socials. Well, obviously, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely getting to know you. I just wish you the best. I just think what you're doing is amazing. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, I know for a fact that I've been feeling like everyone is so divinely guided. And so I know that I was supposed to talk to you earlier. I'm actually really happy that it's now because I feel like everything that you've said to me is exactly what I need and am more capable of pushing myself toward. So it feels like divinely placed. I know that you'll be a big part of, you know, because I have to listen to these episodes back. And I know that this one is going to inform uh, future decisions of mine. So thank you. Thank you. If this episode resonated with you, it would mean the absolute world if you could pass it on and let other people know about it. How you can support this podcast is really just sharing it, telling people about it. If you know someone that's hurting in their heart, tell them about Thank You Heartbreak. And if you want to be a guest on Thank You Heartbreak, reach out to me. You can find me on Instagram at Thank You Heartbreak, or you can email me directly at Chelsea. C-H-E-L-S-E-A at breakupward, B-R-E-A-K-U-P-W-A-R-D dot com. 
And if you're interested in one-on-one coaching sessions, you can visit my website, breakupward.com slash shop, where you can check out directly from my site. It's a super, 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 super simple process. Of course, I will answer any of your questions before you book. And again, you can email me at chelsea at breakupward.com. There's many different coaching options. And I would love to show up for you as you begin to show up in more wise and clarifying and secure ways for yourself. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you.